0: 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com/work. shopify.com/work. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues
1: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 22 in our series for 2019. And today's date is Friday, June the 28th.
2: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
1: First, I talked to Toby Litton, the CEO of Auckland-based Parkable, a Deloitte Fast 50 winner, which provides staff parking solutions for enterprises and small businesses and a sharing economy-style public parking app, and which has just entered the China market. And I'll be talking to RMIT economist Professor Sinclair-Davidson, about the government's chances of getting its tax cuts package up in the following week, with the new parliament resuming post-election. But for now, let's talk to Toby Lytton. Okay, Toby, let's start with um, Parkable expanding into China. Yeah, exciting times. <laughs> well, tell us about that. Uh, well, it's a big market. I mean, it's one of the biggest park- market, parking markets in the world, isn't it?
3: Yeah, that's right' um, about the second biggest in fact uh, and it's um, yeah a huge opportunity for, for a, you know a humble tech startup but um, we see we sort of see our place in that opportunity and see some specific areas that we can really help Chinese parkers and real estate owners and um, with the application of our tech we, we're getting pretty excited we're, we're sort of starting to unlock some of that.
1: Oh, tell us about the tech that goes into parkable.
3: Yeah, sure. Um, so it's, it's it's full stack. So it's a complement of software, um, both web and apps, and a whole bunch of IoT equipment to enable things like detection of vehicles, detection of passengers, uh, access control, um, all the way through to sort of data-rich um, technology like uh, license plate recognition and things like that. Really all of it built to drive a more frictionless parking experience, um, which in turn leads to better parker sort of uh, experience, happier parkers, and better utilization of the real estate. So that, that's what
1: we built it for. And uh, But surely you need Chinese partners to enter yeah. that market. So, where have you gone with that? Yeah, yeah I'm absolutely right. Like, we we
3: recognize that um, with the huge opportunity comes huge challenges, and, and China, particularly so. You know, the, both the political landscape up there and the economic landscape is quite complex. So on the back of that and taking some advice, um, we felt that a joint venture was the best way to go. So um, through our investor networks, we identified a, a, an investment group in China that specialise in investing in and in standing up foreign entities um, that want to operate in China and want to introduce their tech and or business uh, to mainland Um And so we partnered up with them, and uh, they've invested into the Chinese joint venture, help us get it established, and and, um, yeah, do exactly as promised, really, help stand up the tech and and start to get our first customers
1: underway. So they have the infrastructure to support the rollout of Parkable?
3: Yeah, that's right. So they've got a a, a complement of about 350 staff um, and a significant um, within-China investor network backing them as well. which sort of, you know, the thing in China, um, in fact the world over really is, your success is often um, hinged around the quality of your relationships. And the team up there um, at, the, at the top of the business um, have outstanding relationships both into business and into government. Um, and in addition, with the with the full complement of staff and supporting infrastructure, it really means we can get a head start on our ambitions up there.
1: One of the interesting things about that, though, is a lot of companies are deterred from that because it takes them so long to find partners. (laughs) So, I mean, how long did it take you?
3: Yeah, we were looking or we were in talks with them for about six months before we um, finalised the deal. And, uh, you know, finding the partner was was hard or qualifying them was hard. But, you know, um, as I say, China's a complex market. That was about uh, 18 months ago. Um, And so it's taken us 18 months really to get to this point of launch um, to make sure that we're in a position where we can not only – do a great job for our customers, um, do a great job for our parkers but also defend the work that we're doing. So we were really keen to um, make sure that we were um, careful or considered in our approach, um, albeit that you know it's big big ambitions for a startup as I say and um, and we do like to move fast. we felt that in this case it was best to, to get it right when we did launch.
1: Now what's interesting about China is it's what, it's become the leading market for electric vehicles, hasn't it?
3: Yeah, that's right. Um, And and no signs of that slowing down. So for us, um, the EV market in China is obviously huge and exciting, um, but it's a core part of what we're doing. So there's a big... Big problem is you start to see the uptake in EVs um, up there, and we believe that this problem will replicate the world over, where you've got non-electric vehicles occupying EV parking spaces, meaning that EVs can't get in there and charge their car. So a big part of the problem uh, statement that we serve in China is actually helping those electric vehicles reserve, pay for, um, manage their charging and sort of prevent the gasoline vehicles from from getting in and whipping the spot. Uh, and for the real estate owner, um, we can also do things like help them to manage their electrical loads in the building and all kinds of technical stuff that um, that are quite valuable. Plus the core business of getting maximum u- utilisation of their of their real estate.
1: But surely you would actually also have to set up EV charging stations, would you?
3: No, we partner with the guys who do that. Um, That's not our core competency. And, and, you know, we recognize that there is some fantastic capability around the world that can do that. Um, So we're partnering with uh, a number of very large EV um, charger manufacturers in China. um, And, yeah, and they're wonderful to work with and and do a great job.
1: Okay. Now, uh, so which cities are you going to be based in?
3: So uh, we, we're starting in Shanghai. That's where our head office is up there, um, and looking to deploy from Shanghai through uh, the tier one cities first, and starting with some of the bigger five. So that um, you know, for those who, who get into Chinese geography, that's um, uh, Shenzhen, Guangzhou, uh, Hong Kong off the mainland, uh, and Beijing. In addition to Shanghai, and then from there, uh, the customers that we're getting now. Tend to have a presence in a number of cities, both tier one and tier two. But for us, the the actual operations are
1: in those five. I mean, one of the. The Chinese government has been offering park sharing incentives, haven't they?
3: Yeah, that's correct. Um,
1: you know, there's, there's uh, quite a phenomenon in
3: China as, as you know as the country's evolved and a lot of people, you know, know more about this stuff than I do, but as the country's evolved and there's been kind of the, the emerging middle class over the last you know ten, fifteen years up there, car ownership's gone through the roof. We're now seeing E V ownership go through the roof. And that's led to a situation where there's a shortage of car parking In certain areas, um, more extreme than we see in in the Western world, um, which gives rise to a real need for technology-based solutions to help manage that. So on the back of that, the Chinese government turned around and said, hey, guys, um, let's start sharing our space a little better uh, and let's encourage tools and businesses and technology that can enable this. and, And that's where we fit in.
1: Okay, so did you have to have discussions with Chinese government? Yeah, we're, we're in regular talks um,
3: about what we do with uh, the local governments in the various areas where we operate. Um, and, uh, you know, in China, it's it's very much a permission-based economy. You've got to have permission to be able to do anything. So with these incentive programs and the, the sort of support that the government is offering up there for businesses like ours, um, what it does is that it enables uh, a faster entry to market and perhaps a more supported entry to market than we might otherwise have seen.
1: And you have a joint venture investors, don't you? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And that's that group I was talking about
3: before. Um, they're the, they've got you know full infrastructure to support Western businesses looking to stand up in China. Uh, and behind them, a, a, um, a large group of investors um, who, who fund the business operations up there.
1: And I take it they would have a lot of experience in China.
3: Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, huge amount of experience. You know, we're we're fortunate um, that uh, that the our two lead contacts within that group. Uh, one is from um, a small town just out of Melbourne, uh, and the other is from Byron Bay, um, up at the other end of the country. So, um, so we're pretty lucky that that we've got, um, you know. A, a sort of a, a relatively easy cultural understanding <laughs> to get into China. And, and between those two guys, they've had uh, a little over 50 years experience up there running very large businesses. Um, and that that sort of um, cultural bridge, if you will, has been extremely
1: helpful. So uh, how long do you expect uh, to will take to get China better down for Parkable? <laughs> <laughs>
3: How long's a piece of string? You know, the opportunity is so vast. Um, Getting bedded down is one thing, and that's that's what we've spent about the last 15, 16 months doing. and now we're just going live with our first customers. And then what it's a case of doing is, is broadening out within China. We're we're quite narrow in the um, in the product set that we've launched with by design, um, and that's in order to get do a great job for the customers that we're picking up. Be really focused on delivering success for them before we offer our um, full complement of products that we offer elsewhere in the world, which are you know sort of broadens out beyond. You know what? In China's case is VIP parking or electric vehicle parking. Uh, We want to broaden that out into a more general um, marketplace for parking to enable all parkers to be able to access all parking profiles.
1: That's quite extraordinary. Now, where else are you planning to expand to? We we have very large ambitions. You know, um,
3: and we've we've been saying for a long time now. There's there's 35 countries that we're keen to expand through. Um, We're at number three now, so it's still early days. But um, from China, we'll be coming back down through Southeast Asia. Singapore is likely to be a, a early market for us, Um, and we're in talks um, the other way around the world too with partners in uh, in North America and the UK and Europe.
1: North America and Europe would be quite massive markets. Yeah, and
3: and very competitive too. So, you know, we've got to be real about um, about, it takes a lot of time and energy to grow our business in uh, Australia, Southeast Asia and New Zealand uh, and China, of course. Um, And so we want to stay aware of what's going on in the competitive landscape throughout North America. We want to make sure that we can maintain... You know, our competitive position and and really, most importantly, do a great job for our parkers and for our real estate owners and make sure we continue to deliver them value. So that means launching in the right market um, to a plan um, and making sure that we can sort of fulfil that promise as we do.
1: Right. Okay. Okay. And uh, each of those markets would have very different uh, constraints and parameters, wouldn't they? Yeah.
3: Yeah, quite right. Yeah, in fact, you know, parking's an interesting old industry. Um, The constraints and perimeters are almost city by city, and in some instances, suburb by suburb. Um, So it's very easy to talk about somewhere like China or somewhere, you know, like Sydney, um, and and sort of say, well, there's... Yeah, those are big markets. Sydney, Sydney, loads a big market. Um, the reality is to to unlock the parking game, you've got to have a, a really adaptable technology stack. You've got to have a really adaptable team, um, and you've got to be constantly willing to go the extra mile to deliver value to the real estate owners and the parkers um, in order to unlock those markets. So, um, yeah, so you're absolutely right. Very complex. Um, every every country, every city, every suburb requires um, you know re- requires a, a plan, um, and that's part of what we do.
1: Well, Toby, it's been fascinating talking to you and uh, we'll be watching Parkable with a great lot of interest. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, you're welcome, Leon. Really good talking with you, and uh, have a great day. And now let's talk to RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson. Sinclair Davidson, the government is now negotiating with Centre Alliance for its tax package. Parliament will be returning next week on July the 2nd. How do you think it's going?
2: Well, it's going to be very interesting because they need effectively three votes in the Senate. Um, I think there's talk that uh, Mr Bernardi will be returning to the Liberals, or if he doesn't return, he's, he's probably a safe vote for them. So they need three votes in the Senate to get their tax package through and of course they're hoping to get it through retrospectively because the the 2nd of July is actually after the beginning of the new tax year which is the 1st of July so they would want to get it through very quickly and backdated so everybody gets I think $1,000 as opposed to $500 um, pretty quickly.
1: But the Centre Alliance is making demands on the government to change its gas and energy policy. It all will take some time to implement and it's difficult to see how the government can agree to
2: it. Yes, look, it it, it is difficult and I I would imagine if you are a senator holding the balance of power and the government is coming to you with things like tax cuts or whatever it is the government's coming to with you, you're going to be putting your demands on the table first and certainly I would be saying to the Central Alliance if I were them, I would get payment in advance. Uh, We have seen various Governments over the last few years, promising all sorts of things to to crossbenchers and then not quite delivering. So, uh, um, I mean, even though I, I think the tax cut should be delivered sooner rather than later, certainly I'm not at all surprised that the central alliance are making demands. And um, I would certainly be saying to them, "Yep, yeah, payment up front."
1: Do you expect the government will deliver on energy policy? Because it is an issue that has is actually, let's say, divided the party room.
2: I look, I think the, the it's going to be very hard for the government to deliver the kind of energy policies I imagine the Central Alliance want. Um, but at the same time, I think they will have to deliver something at some stage. And certainly, I think around energy policy, we've, we, we've more almost been in paralysis now since the early noughties, uh, where nobody can quite agree what needs to be done. Uh, we, we, we've come very, very close. I was listening to former Prime Minister Rudd on the radio the other night complaining bitterly about the Greens, um, just – Twenty nineteen, a uh, 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 twenty nine. Um, so it, something will happen in the energy space. I, I doubt that the government will be giving the central alliance what they want or what they demand. But they might give them something else. You know, so it, it's very much a case of of, of, of horse trading at the moment. Uh,
1: can you see the central alliance accepting something else? <laughs>
2: Well, the <laughs> the thing with with, with cross benches is that it, it, it's always sort of hellfire and damnation, and then all of a sudden uh, they they agree to something, and the government more or less gets what they want. Um, I, I think, at the end of the day, a lot of a lot of cross not all of them, but a lot of cross benches do buy the line that the executive government gets first dibs on policy, and I suspect we will see some of that as well. Um, certainly, I, I, I don't expect to see anything very radical in the energy policy space.
1: It reminds me very much of the days of Brian Harrington. Yes, you had to drive a very hard deal with various governments. Yes, he was a very wily operator
2: he was indeed. Um, I mean, if, if if you travel to Northern Tasmania, even today they've got the most beautiful highways and the most fantastic public infrastructure. And and well, when I've driven in in Northern Tasmania, I've always thought, well, this is Brian Harrodine's work. Um, and and good on him. Um, to be quite honest, at at, at some point it is the senator's jobs to bring home. The bacon to their home state, um, and and certainly that's what Brian Harradine did. He certainly brought home the bacon to Tasmania. Um, I don't think the Central Alliance are necessarily focused on bringing home the bacon to South Australia, but 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 nonetheless, I I, I do think that they will be promised something, and I, I ultimately I think that they will the, at some point the government's tax policies will pass the set will pass the Senate, and um, I actually think they should pass the Senate. So I, I think this is probably a, a pretty good deal for Australia uh, um, overall.
1: The question, though, is that uh, the Central Alliance people don't strike me as wily as Aradine was.
2: <laughs> well, that becomes a negotiation tactic between them and and, and the government of the day. I mean, I, I, th- I think, yeah, it, it's it's – they will get something, and, and, of course, they should get something because, after all, people voted for them to deliver stuff. I'm I'm, I'm not a big fan of this sort of open checkbook mandate, mandate theory that everybody talks about. Um, you still have to get your stuff through the parliament.
1: Well, the other big issue, too, is Pauline Hanson. Now, I have given up following her because one minute she supports the tax changes, next minute she doesn't. Now she's saying she will only get it through if they approve a coal-fired power station, the Bradfield water plan, which was up in the 1930s, (laughs) and she wants changes to the family court, of all things. And uh, it's very hard to envisage a government coming along to this party. Uh, And and I I sort of wonder, how serious is she? Or is this just attention-getting?
2: I think she's been very good at thought bubbles all along um, I think ultimately if you have a look at her voting record she does tend to vote with the government of the day so I imagine there again there'll be lots of talk and, and storm and thunder and all this sort of stuff in the end I think she will vote for the tax cuts um, ultimately the tax cuts are targeted at the moment at her actual electoral base so I would imagine the the uh, uh, the tax cuts will go through to her uh, as well go through i imagine she will vote for it and if she has any other senators at the time i think she may have picked up another one at the last election i can't recall um if that person is still in one nation when the vote comes along um i suspect they will vote for it as well so um yes i i, I think mrs hansen and and whoever she's got will, will will probably support it which means that they're down to needing another one person perhaps it's it's because you know, they only need three
1: it's a very, very delicate negotiation, isn't it?
2: Yes, yes, yes it is. Um, and there will be lots of horse trading and promises and what have you. Um, but as I say to to the crossbenchers, just bear in mind, some of the promises you will receive are on the never-never.
1: The other issue is what, which way the Labor Party is going to go. And uh, now they're saying they will approve the first two tranches, but the final tranche of the tax cuts for the higher earners, they won't approve they are saying, but that is still up for discussion, I think, and the ALP is licking its wounds and doing a lot of soul-searching to see whether they should approve it, and maybe they should, and just let the government own whatever issues... (laughs) Yes, I
2: I, yes I, I, I'm I often a a, a a fan of the notion that when the government comes along with an idea that you completely disapprove of, that you should just vote it through. If, if, if you remember in 1993, Paul Keating actually said at the election, if you vote for a GST, you will get a GST. Um, well, I, I think we, we – opposition should do that more often, say, well, this is what you wanted, this is what you voted for at the last election, and now you're going to get it. Um, because, But at the, at the same time, bearing in mind the third tranche only comes in in 2024, Now, that could be as many as two elections away. I mean, so if 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 it starts going badly, there's plenty of time to repeal the third tranche and replace it with something else. To be quite honest, I would be saying to to the Morrison government, bring in the third tranche now. Um, If if, if you think the economy is slowing down now and and there's a lot of people saying we're in a retail recession and we're, we're in a per capita recession and all this sort of stuff, which I'm not quite sure if that's true. If you think the economy the economy needs stimulus now, don't start spending on infrastructure, which is like 12 months down the track. Give people tax cuts now. So um, to the Labour Party, pass it because you can always repeal it. There's, there's almost certainly going to be two elections between now and then. And uh, um, if it works out well, take the glory. But certainly I, I think the, the entire package should actually be... Pass the parliament because it is good policy, not necessarily because it is a mandate or anything else that people want to talk about. Having tax cuts is always a good policy, especially right now when the tax cut, uh, sorry, the, the tax take is at historic highs
1: and of course the question of mandate is uh, subject to debate because if we're talking about something that 2024 25
2: you got no mandate for that there's no mandate for that <laughs> yes
1: because uh, people only voted for the mandate in that, the last
2: election that's for the right three years. that's right that's right yeah and and bearing in mind the even the, the 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 members of of the opposition and the cross bench who were elected at the last election they too have mandates you know so everybody's got a mandate so the, the whole notion there that you simply have to go along with the, whatever the executive government proposes um, is actually quite silly because why would we have an opposition at all or why would we have cross-benches bench, at all? We actually have these people in place uh, to make arguments. And if 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 whatever policy the government proposes is a bad policy, it's the opposition's job to highlight that. So that doesn't worry me per se, but I, I actually think that these are good policies. I think Australians are overtaxed. I think the elimination of the 37% tax bracket is a good policy. I think bringing the 32% bracket back to 30% is a good policy. Um, I think simplification is good. I think the 47 plus various levies and what have you is far too high. But I think that can, we, we, we can cross that bridge when we've done all sorts of other reforms. So I would pass the entire package in, uh, in its entirety now and see what happens.
1: Well, Sinclair-Davidson, it'll be fascinating to watch. And thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, fund managers aren't holding their breath ahead of this week's meeting between President Donald Trump and Xi Jinping, saying they don't expect much progress to be made when they meet at the G20 on Friday and Saturday. Is a common view among China investors, there's little chance the two leaders will suddenly reach an agreement and resolve a trade dispute that has weighed on markets over the past year. The market consensus expects a possible détente in Osaka, but no substantive agreement. An agreement of any kind, however, might not matter. A US-China agreement to keep negotiating on trade doesn't mean they've made any progress on the points that divide them. Codifying intellectual property protections, opening up China to more foreign investment, measures to rebalance a trade deficit, and the timing of the removal of existing tariffs. Indeed, the damage to US and global economies may already have been done, with the imposition of import tariffs that are disrupting manufacturers' supply chains, eroding business confidence and investment, and raising prices for business and consumers. But Prime Minister Scott Morrison will call for urgent reform of the World Trade Organization at the G20 by recognising the legitimacy of many of the United States' grievances with China and declaring international trade rules are no longer capable of dealing with Beijing's behaviour. At the same time, the Prime Minister will warn the collateral damage caused by the US-China trade war was spreading and that both sides needed to resolve their dispute in a way which did not undermine the interests of other nations, including Australia. And during his interview on NBC's Meet the Press, President Trump blasted Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell, claiming Powell has raised interest rates too fast, insisting to host Chuck Todd that he never threatened to demote Powell, despite reports to the contrary, the President complained that he hasn't gotten the benefit of low rates, but that the economy will ball through it. But I'm not happy with his actions, Trump said. No, I don't think he's done a good job. I think this, if he didn't raise rates, Obama had very low rates. So Obama was playing with funny money. I wasn't. I'm playing with the real stuff. And Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe has urged the Morrison government to get infrastructure projects shovel-ready in case they are needed for an emergency stimulus to pull Australia out of an economic downturn. Dr Lowe said the coalition should borrow while interest rates were at record lows to fund construction of projects. The Central Bank Board is tipped to cut interest rates to 1% when it meets in July, as weak wages, employment and inflation data continue to hamper the federal government's claims of an economic recovery. Dr Lowe also said major infrastructure funding should be run like monetary policy, at arm's length from the government so that voters trust it is fit for purpose. And a scramble by financial service companies to bring in external consultants to help compensate customers in the wake of the Banking Royal Commission has helped Deloitte post record revenue of $2.3 billion, up 13% for the year. The strong top-line result was also driven by the Big Four consulting firm's surging advisory business. Revenue in consulting was up 19% in the year and despite the slowdown in business buying due to the federal election. And data from a global banking standards body shows oversight of Australian banker pay is way out of step with global standards, putting it dead last in a study of 20 peer nations. A progress report from the Financial Stability Board reveals Australian banks have not addressed four of 12 standards designed by the FSB, making it the worst performer in a survey that includes Russia, Mexico, and Saudi Arabia. The FSB developed a set of principles and implementation standards in the aftermath of the GFC to promote sound pay practices and align compensation with, with prudent risk-taking. The sixth report has chosen to zero in on Australian remuneration practices and deficiencies as a case study. Board oversight of Bank of Pay has been a particular failing of Australian banks, according to the FSB, who gave Australia a red rating across three of six standards related to governance, meaning no significant bank had implemented the FSB's recommendations. The next worst performers were Russian banks, who attracted a yellow rating across three of the six standards relating to governance, meaning most significant banks had implemented the standards, but not all of them. Released last week, the report has special significance in Australia, where the majority of shareholders at NAB, Westpac and ANZ voted against the remuneration report during the AGM season in December. And sales of new cars in Australia have fallen for 14 consecutive months, according to the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries. More than 1.1 million new vehicles were sold in Australia over 12 months through to May, down 7% on the previous period, which, Comsec said, was the biggest annual decline in more than nine years. In addition to economic conditions, there are other shifts occurring in the market that could prove a speed bump for car sales. Car sharing is a growing industry in Australia and could be a viable alternative for ownership for inner-city drivers. And a deal with the Senate crossbench to pass the $158 billion in tax cuts is looking increasingly likely after Labor effectively ruled itself out of the debate with a complicated compromise offer that was rejected immediately by the government. Tasmanian Senator Jackie Lambie, who has formed a loose bloc with Centre Alliance, could also support the tax cuts. Should the government win crossbench support, a divided Labor Party might still find itself having to explain to voters whether it will repeal the top-end tax cuts if it wins the next election, potentially keeping the issue alive for the years. At a meeting of the Shadow Cabinet on Monday, Labor resolved it would ask the government to split the bill for its three-stage, $158 billion tax package when it came to Parliament next week. It also demanded the government bring forward the second stage by three years to July the 1st this year, the same time as Stage 1 begins this year to maximise the economic stimulus. But it continued to withhold support for Stage 3, which is due to begin in 2024, and believes this should be split from the bill and be debated at a later date. The government immediately rejected the proposal, as did key crossbench party, the Centre Alliance, which is seeking assurances from the government for lower gas and power energy prices in return for supporting the whole tax package. It's understood independent Tasmanian Senator Jackie Lambie who has formed a loose block with Centre Alliance, could also support the tax cuts if satisfied with the energy price guarantees. This would deliver the tax cuts and sideline One Nation. But Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton has infuriated the federal government's potential allies in Senate negotiations over income tax cuts worth $158 billion, putting a cordial relationship at risk with his eagerness to repeal refugee medical transfer laws. The row has triggered a warning from Centre Alliance, which has two crucial votes in the Senate, against any government plan to scrap the law passed in February, allowing doctors to recommend the transfer of refugees to Australia for medical treatment. Angry at the way Mr Dutton has characterised the refugee law, Centre Alliance Senator Sterling Grift accused the Home Affairs Minister of an outright lie and said the false claims would undermine talks on the sweeping tax cuts. The new warning comes after One Nation leader Pauline Hansen attacked the government for failing to negotiate with her on its tax cuts, while Tasmanian independent Jackie Lambie keeps the government guessing on her stance. And Prime Minister Scott Morrison has vowed to slash government red tape to unlock investment and open the door to industrial relations reform, challenging business to make the case for change and to deliver shared gains for workers and employers. In his first major domestic policy speech since winning the election last month, the Prime Minister rebuffed criticism his government lacks a reform agenda, also outlining plans to overhaul the vocational training system and embrace technology to deliver greater competition in banking, insurance and utilities for consumers. Declaring his task is to get consumers and businesses off the economic sidelines Mr Morrison also ratcheted up pressure on Labor to back the full $158 billion income tax cut package, which would deliver an immediate boost to the economy, the equivalent of two interest rate cuts. In the wake of pleading from the Reserve Bank that monetary policy alone was not enough to drive growth, Mr Morrison said that regulatory and bureaucratic barriers that stop businesses investing need to be lifted to provoke the much-needed animal spirits in our economy. With the Coalition gun-shy on workplace reform since the backlash against work choices in 2007, Mr Morrison told the West Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry new industrial relations minister Christian Porter will take a fresh look at how the system is operating and where there may be impediments to shared gains for employers and employees. And the Morrison government has signalled a major overhaul of the superannuation sector. Assistant Minister for Superannuation and Financial Services Jane Hume has set a deadline of 2021 for the shake-up. The year the compulsory superannuation guarantee is set to rise from 95 to 10%. The changes include reintroducing legislation to make all superannuation opt-in for under-25s, saving $2.6 billion in fees. Senator Hume plans to act on the Productivity Commission's recommendations for the sector after a review found workers could be entitled to an extra $500,000 for retirement. And Spotless Group Holdings has submitted a formal application for the removal of Spotless from the Australian Securities Exchange official list. The Spotless board said it considers the delisting to be in the best interest of Spotless and its shareholders because it is seeking to minimise their expenditure and want to reduce costs. Also, they've seen low trading volumes and an erratic share price. Two shareholders in Spotless collectively hold 99.4% of the ordinary shares in Spotless, which have been trading at one76 and the News Corps tabloid newspaper, The Herald Sun, is offering journalists a financial bonus of between $10 and $50 for driving digital subscriptions and traffic through their own stories. If readers land on a paywalled story and they decide to subscribe to access the full story, the reporter will be financially rewarded after a certain target is reached, potentially earning them hundreds of dollars extra each week. This is a wrong decision because research shows increased traffic does not lead to more advertising. Secondly, it encourages clickbait. Thirdly, reporters will focus on stories about crime, sex and entertainment, not investigative journalism, politics and analysis. And fourthly, it will cost the loss-making Herald Sun money. An independent retail wholesaler, Metcash's full-year underlying profit has fallen 3% to $210 with earnings growth in its hardware and liquor businesses unable to fully cover falls in groceries. The company said that food sales to IGA, Drake's and other supermarkets fell 0.5%, driven by poor trading in Western Australia. Earnings from the grocery business fell 3%. Like-for-like sales at the IGA fell 0.5%, which was an improvement from a 0.9% fall last year. Metcash's sales to its home timber and hardware and mitre 10 stores were hit by the slowdown in housing construction and the loss of a large customer in Queensland, and fell 0.9%. Bottom line net profit after tax for the year was $192.8 million, compared to a $148 million loss last year, which was driven by $345.5 million in write-downs and goodwill impairment. An online retailer, Kogan.com, has announced plans to enter the retail energy market in a multi-year agreement with PowerShop Australia, the company that will provide the power and gas services. The new offering will be named Kogan Energy, and is expected to be launched before December 31st. The agreement would simplify the provision of power and gas services and make these essential services more affordable through digital efficiency, Kogan said in a statement to the Australian Stock Exchange. And Australia's female athletes are struggling to cash in on their surging popularity and the tidal wave of publicity generated by stars like Ash Barty, Steph Gilmore and the Matildas. Despite the growing interest in female sport, The salaries earned by the athletes themselves remain despicable, according to MNC Saatchi Sport and Entertainment Managing Director Jamie Gilbert-Smith. Brands and sporting associations need to close the pay gap between male and female athletes and invest in growing women's leagues to capitalise on the recent surge in popularity, he adds. And Transurban could get taxpayer compensation for closing lanes on its CityLink cash cow to build its next massive toll road, the Westgate Tunnel. In another windfall to the tolling giant, the company would also be compensated if the government introduced a congestion-busting tax on motorists. Transurban, which owns CityLink, is now building the Westgate Tunnel, a $6.7 billion project linking the Westgate Freeway in Yarraville and CityLink in the Docklands. Thousands of Westgate Tunnel documents were released by the state government last week, including an unredacted version of the project's contract. It reveals that Transurban would be compensated if it loses tolling revenue by closing traffic lanes on CityLink in order to build a tunnel. The payments would apply if the traffic disruptions were unforeseen and had not been scheduled with Transurban. They could rise from planning approval delays, changes to the project's design or new laws affecting the road. If the road's builders, CPB contractors and John Holland are responsible for unforeseen CityLink disruptions, the joint venture would be slugged with a bill. This is designed to minimise unplanned impacts or extended delays to motorists. But the builder's bill is capped at an undisclosed amount with the government to pay any outstanding fees. An independent auditor has been barred from calculating the compensation payments the documents also show. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Professor Jason Potts, a director at the Blockchain Innovation Hub at RMIT who looks at how Facebook is changing the banking system with its cryptocurrency model. And he says it will be followed by others, like Apple and Microsoft, so banks should watch out. And I'll be talking to RMIT economist Jonathan Boymel, looking at what's ahead in the Australian property market with the RBA cutting interest rates. And of course, I'll be bringing you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter, at TalkingBizBZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Have a great week. Take care. Be good.